94.7 Kumu Kokua because Kumu cares. We are doing our Kumu Kokua segment and of course this is where we bring in Hawaii's leaders and experts to talk about the issues that you care about and uh, also here to answer your questions. Today we are focusing on Black Lives Matter. It's actually kind of a continuation of last night's conversation. We had a great convo last yeah. night. Yeah, And it was two hours and we're still like, now nah, we can talk about it some more. We're good. <laughs> totally. Let's talk about it some more. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. And and by the way, uh, last night's conversation should be getting on YouTube soon. Mm-hmm. And when we have that fully up, uh, we will post that link on our Kumu Facebook. Um, last night we had here in our Kumu studio, we had uh, Police Chief Susan Ballard. We had uh, from the NAACP here in Hawaii, Alfonso Braggs. Uh, we had Dr. Uh, Noilani Goodyear Kaopua from the UH Political Science Department. And here uh, last night and again this morning <laughs> bright and early in our kumu studio dr akemi glenn from the popola project good morning good morning okay so dr glenn or akemi akemi japanese name how because <laughs> you're like well i'm from the south so i just wanted to kind of get some background from you uh you know we gave you like a minute and a half right. to give <laughs> your entire life story and there's yeah, just yeah, not yeah. enough time yeah. so uh, if you don't mind uh, just share with us kind of you know where you're from that yeah kind of stuff. help our listeners know you yeah. a bit sure um yeah it is a japanese name i get this <laughs> question a lot because i'm very obviously not japanese <laughs> Um, it's, it's a name that my parents gave me. My father was in the Marine Corps, and so I moved around quite a lot as a, a young person. I did most of my growing up in Virginia, though. My dad was stationed there for a while. Uh, my parents are originally from North Carolina. Mm. And um, you know, the time that uh, my family spent in Japan was important to them, and so they gave me this name. Um, and so I've carried it with me even before I came to Hawaii. Wow. Uh, I've been here for about 17 years now. Um, and so it's interesting because I grew up with a lot of Hawaii people because of the military. Um, some of my best friends in middle school, my best friend in middle school was from Waianae, actually, in Virginia. Mm. Um, yeah, because so you have a, you you can, the words flow off your tongue yeah, the ho- really yes, easily. The Hawaiian. You know what I mean? I've been it around for bang. a little bit, but I'm, <laughs> I'm also a linguist by training. Oh, so my, okay. my area of specialty is Polynesian languages, actually. Oh, okay. So that's what my doctorate is in. My ah. brain just blew up. <laughs> That's cool. So that is very cool. Uh, what, what drew you to linguistics and, and becoming an ap- academic like that? Well, you know, originally, uh, like I said, I grew up in Virginia and my family, um, though from North Carolina, um, and both my parents are black, but also both mixed race black people. Mm. Um, my mom's family is also Native American. And I grew up in a place that had lots of Native names and words around. And as a kid was just really interested, like what, what happened here? Why do we have these words? Why do we have English? Um, and I think from a very young age was just really curious about how language shapes our world and how we understand. And I mentioned you know, my dad spoke Japanese um, and we had lots of Japanese friends and neighbors, mm. um, even in Virginia. And so, wow. you know, being able to switch back and forth was really fascinating to me as a kid. And so, yeah, it just ended up being the thing that I have done with my life. That's amazing. That now, is. Uh, one of the other things that we talked about very briefly yesterday was the Popola Project. Now, I don't know, growing up, we used that word before. Uh, I know that over the years, it's become a little bit more racially charged. Um, so I was just curious, what made you name it Popolo mm. Project? Yeah, well, that, that word Popolo is actually a plant. Right. And it's a yeah. plant that grows all over Hawaii. It was brought here by Polynesian voyagers, and it actually lives all around the world, certainly all around the Pacific, and it has names that are very similar. It grows in New Zealand, where it's called Poroporo. Mm. Um 
it's a medicinal plant and it's something that was was very highly favored for its uses as a dye the berries are dark purple almost black the leaves are eaten um, it's uh, antibacterial it does all kinds of things so it was brought here because it had value and you know the association with black people we're not exactly sure when that happened but kind of anecdotally we think around uh, World War II was when it started kind of picking up in Hawaii slang mm -hmm. and it was kind of a euphemism um, at the time, there were a lot more black service members here. And uh, you can imagine there were other words for black people, some of them very much not nice mm -hmm. and borrowed from English words for black people. And what we think happened was that there was, um, you know, this knowledge of this plant mm -hmm. and people started just kind of calling folks, you know, popolo. And I know that for many people that uh, that word has been really charged, as you say. Mm -hmm. um, for some people, it feels... Uh, disparaging. I've heard people say it's the same as the N-word. Um, but I, I take a different tack with that. Um, one, anytime we talk about blackness in a society that puts black people at the bottom, the words we use to describe those people are often charged. So my grandparents probably wouldn't have liked to be called black in the 1960s. That mm. was considered rude mm -hmm. at the time. Mm. They preferred things like colored, which now sounds so out of date, right. or Negro, right? Um, so the word black itself was very charged. Um, anytime we talk about people who are, are marginalized in that way, it's it's seen as, you know, a, a impolite to even name their, their position in the mm -hmm. society. But I think we have an opportunity in Hawaii, especially with the word like popolo, because um, this is not necessarily a pejorative. Uh, Polynesian languages don't have bad words. They don't have swear words in the same way that we think of them in, in English. It's always contextual. It's always about the relationship. So um, in the same way that, you know, the word haole is not necessarily always bad. Uh, it's the <laughs> context. the words sometimes it, you put in front exactly, of it. Exactly. You know, the word mm. popolo, I think, is important for us for a couple of reasons. One, um, it's an opportunity for us to kind of, you know, um, have a connection with Hawaii mm. because we're talking about the specific experience of being black in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. um, and it's something that also has this reference to a medicinal plant. And I think that there's a real clear uh, analog there with black people because we are at this point of a worldwide diaspora. And um, we are people who are very resilient and have been able to put down roots wherever we found ourselves. Mm -hmm. mm. And our, our cultures have been medicine, not only to us, but also to the rest of the world, oh, yeah. music, music and culture. Yeah, all yeah. of that stuff. Yeah. Right. So I think the medicinal qualities of the popolo plant um, mm. really track with, with our experience and our offering oh, to that's the world. Cool. That's awesome. That's, there's a sort of like an implication of healing there. Yeah. Oh, cool. Very, very cool. 94.7 yeah. Kumu. Oh, we're here you. in Hawaii Matters. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Kimmy Glenn. Uh, we're extending. Kumu Kukua. Kumu Kukua. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Kumu Kukua. We're, uh, we're, ex we're extending the conversation mm -hmm. uh, with, with regards to Black Lives Matter. Please do tell us a little bit more about what the popolo project does sure so the popolo project is a small nonprofit we're based here in Honolulu um, hoping to do more across uh, Hawaii as well but we're right now mostly focused on Oahu and our goal is to redefine what it means to be black here in Hawaii and what we mean when we say redefine is kind of provide more context for black people who live here and also for our larger community to understand who we are and why we're here and what we're doing and what our contributions to Hawaii have been so as an organization, we often describe ourselves as kind of cultural advocacy organization to get folks to think about 
the ways that black culture um, is already present here as a part of what we think of as local. Um, some of that requires us to delve into the history of people of African descent here. Some of it requires us to even unpack what we mean when we say black or blackness, because we're in the Pacific where there are people who are considered black who are not from Africa. So Melanesians mm. and people in the Western Pacific who historically are connected to Hawaii and the indigenous people here. So we do a lot of um, educational uh, community outreach. We hold space for people to come together, gather, um, and also opportunities for our black community to be visible together while we're also exploring the kind of hidden histories of Hawaii. Wow, so uh, this has been quite an exciting sort of couple of weeks for you then because uh, with George Floyd, with uh, just so many different uh, things that have been happening, um, your phone must be ringing off the hook. It's been busy. Um, I'm sure, you know, the, the black community here is quite small. We're only about two and a half percent of the total population in Hawaii. Um, I'm sure there are lots of other folks who are doing community work who've also had their phones ringing off the hook. But we're one of the, the few kind of public facing black mm. organizations here. Mm. So we have had a lot of people reaching out just to try to understand this moment because it feels very different from what we see day to day here in Hawaii. Sure, sure. And you were talking last night and I think uh, and, and you can elaborate now. You have a little bit more time to, to kind of illustrate for I think for our listeners what that has been like over the last few weeks in terms of like for yourself personally and I think for um, a lot of people you have some connections right uh, to the George Floyd uh, family as well so yeah so George Floyd was born in North Carolina in um, uh, near a place called Fayetteville um, where a lot of my family still lives and uh, my uncle actually used to work with his family um, oh, and wow. so mm -hmm. knew his family and actually had met George when he visited so I never met him, but I know my uncle well. And, um, you know, it's just one degree of separation really from this really tragic experience. Um, I think for a lot of us here in Hawaii and, and around the world, the events of the last several weeks have been really shocking and, and painful to watch. Of course, it's really shocking to see a, a video of someone being murdered, of any, any person being mm -hmm. murdered. And it's been playing and replaying. Um, I think, of course, we're also... Even for those of us who are born and raised in Hawaii or black people who have made their home here, mm -hmm. we often still have connections to people who are in danger. And I think even the recent uh, deaths this past week mm -hmm. um, in, in yeah. Atlanta, this young man who was killed yeah. um, by the police, um, it feels really possible that people that we care about could be in danger. So I think a lot of us are processing that along with the grief. And then just the realization that this has been happening for so long. and. Mm -hmm. Uh, some frustration that it's taken this this close and frequent sequence of um, of deaths that were so visible and public to get some folks to believe us or to pay attention to the violence that's been happening. Yeah, it's unfortunate that uh, it, it's been it's been it seems like it's moment after moment after moment. These are these are happening v much more quickly. Uh, you know, before it was something happens to uh, uh oh gosh i'm sorry i forget his last his his name uh mr brown uh michael that, brown, michael brown. Mm -hmm. so it happens to michael brown and then a year later it happens to somebody but this time it's been months weeks uh, one after another and, and, you go, and my gosh, unfolding almost believe. in real time yeah. before our eyes because yeah. of social media it right. feels yeah, so just, immediate whew, yeah. man it, it it kind of freaks you out a little bit um 94 7 kumu we are here with kumu kokua uh dr kemi glenn joining us to talk about black lives matter i, I wanted to pivot a little bit um to an uh, a, a blog post that you did um 
regarding a New York Times headline that came out. Actually, it was an article uh, written by uh, Moises Manoff, Velasquez Manoff, uh, and it basically stated, you want to be less racist, move to Hawaii. Um, and you had some very interesting things to say as an answer to that. And I, I kind of wondered if you would get into that a little bit because we want to make sure that people focus on uh, Hawaii and how race specifically relates in Hawaii. Because people always, like, we always talk about, oh, we're melting pot. Everybody yeah. loves everybody. It's all terrific. And right. that's kind of what he was getting at. But you were going, uh, hang on a second. Yeah, because I think the consensus of the of the panel last night, and I think for most people who are in the know, would say that there is racism in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, love to hear your perspective on that. Sure, yeah. That article that you're mentioning came out last year, just around this time. Um, and I was actually someone that the author interviewed for that right. article. And we spent quite a lot of time talking um, from his initial idea. And he came to Hawaii and spent time with many of us. Um, and when the article came out, I think many of us were very surprised that that was the takeaway and that that was the story he wanted to share with the rest of the world about our lives here. That particular article was really focused on um, an idea uh, that came from a UH researcher about mixed race people here in Hawaii. And the idea was that there are so many mixed race people in Hawaii that when racist people come here, they cannot process and they can't put people in categories. So they just kind of give up on being racist. And I took issue with that for a few reasons. One, um, we have examples all around the world and certainly in the U.S. and in the Caribbean and South America of societies of mixed race people. My family is an example of one where for many generations my family has been mixed. I have I have Chinese and American Indian and African and European ancestors that I know of and who knows who else is in there. <laughs> um, but both of my parents are were considered black and went to segregated schools. And so even though um, we're mixed, a mixed race family multi-generationally, um, the social order of the place where my parents grew up and where my family still lives um, determined how we had access to citizenship, um, public education, where we could move our bodies. And so I wanted to point out in my response to the New York Times article that um, it's not the mixedness of anybody or the fact that our faces are hard to categorize that jams the, the racist idea. Um, anyway, that's just there's no evidence that that happens because we have lots of places where there's still racism and lots of mixed people. And I wanted to draw the line through that even in Hawaii, where we do have a lot of people who have really diverse genealogies, um, there are things that we can zoom out and see, uh, structures that mm -hmm. are produced by concepts of race. And even the fact that we don't recognize everyone uh, who might have a diverse genealogy as mixed. Um, usually when people talk about you know mixed identities, it's often very focused, even here in Hawaii, on people who have a white parent and some other person of color parent that's hapa usually comes to yeah, mind, hapa, right? the <laughs> concept of hapa yeah. where one of the haves is white usually mm, right so the, the my response was really trying to say you know there's an interesting story about race here in hawaii it's very different from north america it's very different from what many people in the audience of the new york times might encounter but it's very specific and it's tied to the history of this place mm, and mm -hmm. if you actually want to delve into that you need to take the time to understand the culture here and understand the history of hawaii what are some of those misunderstandings like other misunderstandings you think people have about hawaii and race relations and especially as it applies to african americans here well one of the things that i, I talk about a lot in my teaching in the community is um you know we we kind of know itemized pieces of hawaii's history 
And Hawaii is a special place. It's unique, but it's also connected to the rest of the world. And um, the fact that we're even having this conversation in English in Hawaii this mm. morning is a testament to um, some of the racial history of Hawaii. Um, many people know about um, the, the plantation system here, and uh, many many people came to Hawaii as plantation laborers. But what a lot of folks don't know is that as those plantations were being set up, they were being advised by consultants from the U.S. South who were managing slave plantations. And so some of the ways that um, the various camps of different ethnicities were set up on plantations here were modeled on the ways that crowd control worked on slave plantations in the U.S. South. Mm. Um, managing, uh, keeping track of the productivity of workers, those kinds of things actually came from, from the ways that people had been managing slaves. And so there was a direct through line there. Oof. Even the way of thinking about laborers on the plantations here was informed by people trying to manage unrest on slave plantations at the time. So that's really important for people to understand. The other thing that I think is really um, crucial is that a lot of the, the energy and the ideas around the overthrow of the kingdom in Hawaii um, came from white supremacists. They came from people who were literally white supremacists, including Dole, whose name is on a lot of things here. He wrote for white supremacist newspapers encouraging Anglo-Saxons to move to Hawaii to displace Japanese and Hawaiians in particular. He was very worried about both mm -hmm. of those groups and thought that having more Anglo-Saxons here would help improve um, the quality of life in Hawaii. And so the overthrow itself was a white supremacist move and it was happening in the 1890s we compare to what was happening in uh, the U.S. in the 1890s, you see a huge backlash against Reconstruction. So Reconstruction is a 12-year period after the Civil War that tried to bring formerly enslaved people into social life and, and civic life. And so you saw lots of people being elected to office, running cities, being in government. And there were um, lots and lots of overthrows that happened across the United States against those governments, including in Wilmington, North Carolina in 1898, where my family was living, some of my family at the time, where white supremacists overthrew the government there, killed a lot of people, and they were also in communication with folks who were doing that work here in Hawaii as well. So even though we don't necessarily always see those as linked, um, the people who were doing those things saw us as linked and saw this uh, opportunity to exert power over Hawaii as linked to white supremacy mm. in the United States. That's mm -hmm. crazy. I know mm -hmm. uh, one of the other things from uh, your article that you'd written in response, um, the idea that they would paint King Kalakaua as being African-American because they felt that that was a good way to turn the tide against him was to make him seem like he was, yeah, uh, I just, I, my mind boggles at that. And, and they also did it to... Uh, Queen Liliuokalani as well. So, yeah, that, that through line that you're talking about of, of racism just sort of has permeated through the islands, but people don't recognize it. Yeah, and I think especially with the queen after the overthrow, a lot of the political cartoons of the time mm -hmm. depicted her as an African woman. Um, and, you know, big lips, very, very dark skin, curly hair, and big gold hoop earrings, which of mm. course is not what we look like either, right. but it's a racist caricature that was used to telegraph to the rest of the U.S. that this was a legitimate overthrow because someone like this, a woman, a dark-skinned woman, mm. um, is not fit to rule, um, even in her own homeland, even in a place where she, of course, had been chosen as the leader. Right. Wow. 
That blows my mind. <laughs> that totally blows my mind. 94.7 Kubo, we're here uh, speaking with Dr. Kemi Glenn uh, for Kumu Kokua. Yes, absolutely. You know, actually, now that we're talking historically, I think uh, last night we also touched on the on the 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 fact that a lot of Hawaii people do not realize how far back um, the presence of of black people here in Hawaii goes. And can you shed a little bit of light on that? I, I don't expect you to do a, like a whole encyclopedic <laughs> uh, accounting of the history, but but just to give them a sense. Sure, yeah. yeah. You know, as far as we know, there were very likely people of African descent on Cook's voyage to Hawaii. Hmm. Hmm. We don't know. We don't necessarily know all of their names. Um, and those folks could have been um, you know, deckhands, or we don't we don't know, but it's very likely, um, knowing what we know about the British Navy at that time, that there were lots of people of African descent in England and in the British Empire at the time. So that's likely. But what we do know is that very early on, as Hawaii was connecting to the rest of the world, that there were um, people of African descent who came here. So a lot of them at the very beginning were whalers from Cape Verde and from other places. Cape Verde is off the coast of West Africa. Um, many of those people who ended up coming to Hawaii and staying um, ended up being absorbed into what we think of as Portuguese because Cape Verde was a Portuguese colony and they spoke Portuguese even though they were of African descent. So we certainly have that history. Lots of the immigrants who've come to Hawaii, um, including you know in that, that category of Portuguese, there were people from Brazil, there were people from other African uh, Portuguese colonies that came to Hawaii. Um, there were also lots of people from Puerto Rico who came in the late uh, 1800s and ended up being um, really valuable laborers in the sugar plantations. Many of them were also of African descent. And so a lot of the things we even think of as in our local culture as being like even Puerto Rican, mm -hmm. so like pateles, um, <laughs> you know, are a mixture of African culinary traditions with indigenous culinary traditions from the Caribbean. So there's an imprint of African diaspora culture here in Hawaii. And there have been um, there have been people of African descent who advised the monarchy, who were doctors and researchers. Some of the early missionaries were people of African descent, some formerly enslaved, who were eager to come to Hawaii because Hawaii did not have not only did not have slavery, mm -hmm. but was very explicit in the Constitution of 1852, saying um, anyone who gets here will be free, and anyone who tries to come here and snatch them back will have no rights to do so. Mm -hmm. And so, even though there was no slavery here, the kingdom. Um, was very, very vocal and, and adamant about um, ensuring the freedom of all people who, came, who made their way to Hawaii. Wow, that's cool. Right? <laughs> On that note, I think last night, uh, Dr. Uh, Goodyear Ka'opua made the point that in, in that influx of, of, of black people coming here that in, and in the intermingling, there is, uh, she was, of course, speaking, uh, representing, I think, um, uh, at some points, the Hawaiian point of view. And she wanted to make the point that black Hawaiians here, some people might not understand that their background goes way, way back and they belong just as much as any other Hawaiians belong to the Hawaiian community and to the Kama'aina community here. So that's a really interesting point. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I was also... Uh really um, impressed by the chief yesterday uh, speaking about the HPD and, and the, the work that they've been trying to do to, to try to be more sensitive, to try to um, do a little bit more, com do more community policing just in general. So uh, from last night, do you have any sort of things that were takeaways and for can, you? And can I hitchhike on your on yeah. your comment? I think some people who may not have known 
maybe previous because I know like for example Alfonso Braggs from the NAACP and, and the chief of police did say during the program that they have had a collegial they relationship a dialogue, where yeah. yeah dialogues and but I think people who were just tuning in for the first time might have expected some sparks last night you know given the larger mm-hmm. uh, national and, and international um, uh, I think conflict uh, regarding police departments law enforcement and the black community did that surprise you at all last night that it was so collegial no i wasn't yeah. surprised mm-hmm. um but I, I think that there were some really important points that came out in mm-hmm. the conversation last night um one that i i'd like to reiterate is that you know we often think of the police and black people as being in a like a adversarial. naturally adversarial relationship yeah. mm-hmm. and i think mm-hmm. hawaii is one example of it doesn't necessarily have to be that way but at the same time, HPD has a difficult history of, of excessive use of force. In 2015, uh, HPD had the highest uh, or was one of the top five of U.S. cities um, for officer-involved deaths. Um, and so that even though those deaths weren't necessarily black people, that's still something for us to look at. So mm-hmm. I think even though the, the same kind of dynamic of police versus black community may not be at play here, it is still really important for us to hold our police department to high scrutiny and, and really think about the different ways that um, that excessive force has been applied to our community, whether they're black folks or not. Right. And then, you know, um, there's also this issue of the militarization of the police, which mm-hmm. one of the callers mentioned last mm-hmm. night as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, though our local police are not necessarily involved in suppressing riots on a regular basis, the fact that they have those kinds of equipment and do have some of that training is something that all of us should be aware of. And we saw some of that deployed um, last summer on Mauna Kea. Thankfully, no one was hurt and um, there was no violence that was directed at the Kia'i there but the potential for it was there. And yeah. I think that's really important for us as we talk about community policing and even this larger question of what it might mean to abolish or defund the police that we're hearing from across the U.S. Um, part of that is about all of the resources that go into maintaining those arsenals to be able to deal with our, our community and our citizens. Right. Yeah, 94.7 Kumu, we're here with Dr. Akami Glenn uh, talking with her uh, as sort of a, what, like a, a little add-on to uh, <laughs> bonus yeah, as you because <laughs> we did a uh, Hawaii Matters last night for for a couple hours uh, talking specifically about Black Lives Matter That's and right. stuff like that mm-hmm. um, you know as a as a person who uh, has uh, personal stake in this I, I guess to a certain degree uh, just because my relatives are, are African American and stuff like that uh, and I know that you mentioned it's really important to put a human face on it to make sure that people understand that uh these are human beings. They're not. Um, they're not that person over there. Uh, I think. Um, is that a? How do we continue to do that? How do we continue to make those kind of strides and be better allies? Yeah. I think. Yeah. Well, of course, I'm. I'm a huge advocate for people learning more. Um, learning more about the history of Hawaii blackness here. Um, learning that bit of history, you know. There was a Ku Klux Klan chapter here in Honolulu at one point, wow. and a lot of people don't know that. And um, part of what we have to do is just learn learn our history because the the stories are there, helps us contextualize ourselves in the current moment, um, and helps us answer why is this not necessarily happening in Hawaii right now, and mm. also helps us understand could this happen in Hawaii at some mm. point. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would really encourage folks to do that. And as I said last night. Um, you know, it's not just about, it is It is important that we have connections to humans who might be experiencing the threats of violence at the hands of the state or vigilantes or the police. 
Um, and I think your story you shared last night about your family is really important to humanize the experience that people are having. At the same time, I would ask people to think, what would your response be if this was how you had to live? If you were always um, you know, being surveilled, what would your response be after having absorbed that and knowing that your parents dealt with that and your grandparents? I thought last night about your, the story you shared about your cousin going 27 and a 25. My mom got pulled over when I was a kid for going 27 and a 25. When you said that, I thought, wow. Uh, most people think that's kind of shocking because there's usually like a five miles um, mm-hmm. wiggle mm-hmm. room there. But I remember my mom being pulled over in a nice car um, with me and my brother in the back seat. And um, it wasn't necessarily about her being a menace to society or threatening anybody, but it was also about the police officer letting her know that he was paying attention to her and that he saw her and, you know, was going to take up some time of her day. Mm -hmm. Um, And this was many, many years ago. But um, the fact that your story sounds so similar to my mom's story and something that I've experienced myself lets us know that this is not just about a few bad apples and it's not just about some policies that we can change. It's really about a culture mm-hmm. and that's not limited to the police force. This is a larger cultural issue for us um, and Hawaii is not exempt from that because because Americans are here and Hawaii is part of the U.S. at this time um, under you know this, this current political situation. Um, a lot of the ideas about race and about people have been imported to Hawaii as well. So I would encourage people to Think about the assumptions that animate their day. Um, think about when you see a black person in Hawaii, you assume they're in the military, you assume they don't belong here, you assume they're newly arrived. Um, that happens to me all the time. I'll go, <laughs> go I'm not now because we're you know, in the lockdown still, but I would go to a restaurant and people would be like, oh, military discount. And then you know, if they <laughs> oh, happen wow. to see my Hawaii driver's license, <laughs> would be so wow. surprised. And I'd be like, oh, no, military discount. And they're like, are you sure? Because, you know. <laughs> I would have um, just taken the discount, I'd be personally, but you would. I totally would. But. but you know, just thinking about how we understand what it looks like to belong in Hawaii mm-hmm. and giving people the the benefit, not just the benefit of the doubt, but you know, paying paying attention to how people represent themselves and um, being open to the possibility that you know I could be local or someone mm-hmm. who looks like me could be local. Yeah. Um, that goes a long way to changing those yeah. those attitudes. Yeah. Absolutely, ninety four seven Kumu. Uh, you're listening to uh, Kumu Kukua. I, actually, one of my very good friends is, uh, is is a Black Hawaiian, and I've known her since she was a teenager. And she never let on. She actually only recently started to just go kind of public, so to speak, uh, just posting on her Kumu on her Facebook, but just just talking about. Um, the 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 micro biases the microaggressions that you would think here in Hawaii because she is part Hawaiian too mm-hmm. so she grew up in that community she gets both of them. so she but she said she was getting it from both sides mm-hmm. yes indeed mm-hmm. and um, so that was really eye opening to me because she's as local as local can be <laughs> and then she would get those questions like oh same thing like oh are you military or what are you doing here or that kind of thing and she's like I am born and raised here and I'm Hawaiian too and I would get that so that was that's her and and so knowing as you were saying you know knowing the personal stories of people really you know humanizes the yeah. issue the other thing is uh one of my very dear friends is uh she's asian married to just the just the coolest guy um but he is a really um physically imposing um uh man who happens to be black nicest smiliest guy they're they're new parents and uh, but she recently uh, posted about how he also went through a traffic stop kind of situation long, long time ago um, and had situations where he felt like he was 
um, unfairly sort of targeted by law enforcement. Never spoke of it for years and years. Uh, recently, she was kind of teasing him as she has during their marriage that he drives very slow. And she always thought it was just sort of a funny, like weird idiosyncratic thing that he did. And only recently he just, like they've been married a while. And only recently he revealed that the reason he drives under the speed limit is from the time he was a young man, he was taught that's how you avoid getting pulled over by police. So that just broke her heart and it broke my heart because he's the nicest, nicest guy ever. I cannot imagine um, him being, you know what I mean? Like, I can't like suspected of anything less. Because you're worried you're going to get pulled right? over and yeah. something happen to you. Yeah, so, right. Yeah. And, 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 be, and again, because he is just like, a, a, as just the nicest guy. You cannot imagine people like him being uh uh, underestimated because just simply because of skin color it breaks my heart so knowing i think your point to knowing the human stories of people just makes the issue so clear you know yeah yeah uh, and then i called my friend john bryan who lives in japan but he's john you know, Ryan. yeah jb yeah. and he's the most gregarious dude ever and i'm talking to him i go jb we're gonna we're gonna do this thing for you know black lives matter and mm-hmm. stuff so what do you think and he goes you know I don't have any stories," <laughs> he said. He said, "I, I said, I don't know if you call it luck. I don't know if you call it just, I don't know. Something happened. I had, I had grace around me. He said, but I, I don't mm-hmm. recall anything even remotely happening like that. And I went, wow. And it struck me that he felt really guilty about it. He felt really bad. Hmm. And I was like, dude, you don't have to feel bad. He goes, you know, I'm, he goes, I'm sorry. I don't really have anything to share about that kind of stuff. And I went. That's great. Did he spend most? Of, he spent most of his oh, years, growing here. up years oh, here. Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. Here he's, in Hawaii. Yeah, he's born yeah. and raised here. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, his, you know, and he's always the nicest, friendliest guy. <laughs> performed his for his whole life. You know, he uh, worked with Mr. Bright and the uh, Bright Foundation and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's really nice to hear. But it was weird that he felt bad. Yeah, he felt bad. Well, I, you know, hearing that is not new to me either. Um, mm. There are a lot of black people who are born and raised in Hawaii. Um, who, even if they haven't had those experiences, know that they happen to other black people. So that, I don't know your friend, but maybe the guilt comes from just that knowledge that um, it it could have been me. And we Mm. realize that, you know, it's not necessarily that the people who are having these experiences are bad people. My mom, me, uh, my brother, my dad, everybody I know who's lived in the continent has had these experiences on some level, mm-hmm. whether they are full on, you know, having a gun pointed at you, which does happen, mm-hmm. or someone pulling you over for going 27 and a 25. Um, but I think also I've, I've heard from a lot of folks, black folks who've grown up here, that with that knowledge that, that there's something happening in North America, going there sometimes can be really scary and disorienting. Mm. And I um, know a number of folks who have gone away for college or something and come back home to Hawaii because they felt safer here. And that's something that I hear from a lot of people who transplant here as well, that the initial impression of Hawaii is it's just much safer. And then, of course, um, even as we heard on the, the conversation last night, after a while, people realize there's other stuff going on here. It might not be the same kind of abject violence and terror that people experience driving elsewhere, mm. but there are other things that happen. And even if you're local, even if you're Hawaiian and black, um, people remind you that you might not belong here quite a lot. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 94.7 Kumu, you are listening to Kumu Kokua. Um, Akimi, can you also share with our listeners, uh, just kind of like moving forward now, what do you what do you worry about 
Do you worry about anything in regards to now, you know, and also I, I would wonder just generally your mindset. Do you think that this now with this uprising, which is so, I think, by all accounts, different in its energy and its in intensity, um, is this going to be the changing point for real for real this time or is it or do you worry that this is is going to be more of the same and we're going to be back to where we were before well i think there's tremendous potential for this to be a big changing point mm -hmm. um you're right i think the energy around this moment the way that we're seeing um, social media being leveraged as a tool for education um, but also to organize people and to really advocate um you know we we're just saying that it feels like the last several weeks certainly of the pandemic have been a strange time for many of us because um, I think a lot of black people I know were thinking, okay, we're all being asked to stay inside. We're masks everywhere. We're being asked to make a huge cultural change, mm -hmm. to like change our whole lives for the greater good. And while we're all being asked to do that and saying we're all in this together, black people continue to be murdered mm. um, and killed by, I mean, we saw vigilantes killing Ahmaud Arbery mm -hmm. who was jogging in his neighborhood. And I think that um, there's something about that juxtaposition that the whole world is taking a moment to affirm the value of human life by, by deeply changing our daily routines and taking economic hits. But in the United States, this is still continuing. So I think that's one of the things that's really different because people are reacting to that, you know, that business as usual isn't happening in any other regard except in the, the killing mm. of, of our folks. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, you know, I think the energy around this is, is tremendous. The fact that we saw protests in all 50 states last weekend and the week before, um, the fact that they're not stopping and mm -hmm. the fact that there are just, I mean, thousands of people coming out mm -hmm. that Black Lives Matter is now kind of a mainstream sentiment, whereas mm -hmm. even just a couple of years ago, they were labeled as a terrorist organization mm -hmm. just for saying that and right. just for advocating for mm -hmm. the humanity of black people. But I think my worry, if there's one, is that, um, especially because so much of this has happened in social media, that um, this could be a trend unless we actually invest in, in deep-seated cultural change. So policy is really important. Mm -hmm. Actually enacting, um, you know, new laws and rules are important. But I grew up in Virginia post-segregation, and we had laws on the books that said no more segregation, but we also had a culture where Confederate generals were venerated. Some of their statues just recently came down because people were feeling that shift and took them down themselves. But, um, you know, this is a good opportunity for us to see that policy and rulemaking is important, but we need to do the cultural education and really push people to change their values. In other words, talking about it is really nice, but action probably better. Yeah. Actually, not probably. Is, is. better. Yes, definitely <laughs> is better. 94.7 Kumu Kokua. Because Kumu cares. It's Devin. And Desmi. And Dr. Kemi Glenn joining us here for a special Kumu Kokua, uh, talking about Black Lives Matter. So, um, with the Popolo Project, um, how do people get involved with helping you? Because, you know, it's a nonprofit. Having a little money to help get stuff going would be really <laughs> nice, right? Yeah, we are a nonprofit. If, if folks are interested in connecting with what we do, um, they can visit our website, thepopoloproject.org. Um, we would love to connect with folks, whether they are community members who just want to volunteer, if they're educators who want to be a part of the educational work that we do, um, or if they just want to help support us. Um, so with a donation. You've also got an event happening uh, this, this Friday, We right? do. We're going to be celebrating Juneteenth on Friday the 19th. 
Um, and for folks who don't know, Juneteenth is a holiday that's celebrated in the U.S. to acknowledge the end of the, the legal end of slavery. Um, we know that things have kind of morphed and the prison industrial complex is a continuation of that mm -hmm. in some ways. But June 19th celebrates um, a day in 1865 when s enslaved people in Texas found out that they were no longer enslaved. The Emancipation Proclamation had actually been written about two and a half years before, but they didn't get the news um, until they, well after the end of the Civil War. And so Union troops went into Galveston and those folks found out that they were no longer enslaved and mm. didn't have to work for free. So of course you can imagine if you had been working your whole life with no wages, um, you were not free to marry who you wanted to, you couldn't take time off, you couldn't travel. People did all of those things. They celebrated, they found their loved ones, they built businesses, they produced art. Um, and so it's a time that a lot of um, people who are descendants of enslaved people in the U.S. find to celebrate um, because none of us are free until all of us are free. And so um, at the Popola Project, this is this is maybe our third third uh, Juneteenth celebration that we've done in the last few years. Um, we're inviting folks to join us at Makale Park near Diamond Head to um, just have kind of a, a space to celebrate our ancestors. So we're going to build a kind of community altar to honor those ancestors, kind of a community art project um, near the water. And uh, we'll be starting at 630 and going through the sunset. Wow, that's awesome. 6.30 in the evening. In the evening, okay. yes. <laughs> yeah, not all day long. Wow, we're going to be building, that thing's going to be really big. <laughs> so if it, I, I'm sorry, so that, what kind of, I, I, if I were planning to go, when you say people will be uh, helping to build this, what would they bring or what would they do to prepare? Yeah, so what we're doing on, on Friday, um, there are a number of other black organizations that are going to have Juneteenth barbecues on Saturday and, and different virtual things that people can plug into. But we want to start off the weekend with kind of grounding in some of our African diaspora cultural traditions. And in many of our uh, cultures from the diaspora, we really venerate our ancestors and uh, want to take the time to honor them, uh, not just the f those folks who are enslaved, but those folks who have persevered for all of these years to produce us. Um, so we're asking folks to wear white, which is one of the traditional colors to honor ancestors. Um, and also being at the water, um, we're going to be acknowledging not only the restorative properties of the water, but also some of those folks who lost their lives in the ocean um, being trafficked from Africa to mm. the Americas and around the world. Um, what we're asking people to do is bring something that's of significance to them and their ancestors. So some folks might want to bring images, a photo. Some people might want to bring flowers. And together, we're just going to build a collective space where we can, um, you know, be in meditation and thoughtfulness about the day, um, but also have an opportunity to gather at a social distance and um, and see each other. Wow, that's amazing. That's powerful. How do you maintain this uh, level of calm all the time? <laughs> I don't. I, you know what I mean? Because I'm not we, sure I do actually. <laughs> really, I I don't know. We, we've been speaking to you for the last uh, you know 24 hours. Basically, we spent with you, and every time you speak, you have this very sort of even keeled way of speaking. It's very calming. <laughs> oh, wow, that's cool. Um, but, you know, with, with all that's happening, it's, it's amazing that you're able to sort of maintain that. So I was just curious, is, is this something that you, you choose to do because it helps get the message out better or, you know? Well, I, that's a good question. I, th I think probably a lot of it is just my personality. Mm. Um, but also, you know, I think it's important to be very clear in delivering the message. Um, sometimes this is what we're talking about is really emotionally heavy stuff, especially in the last few weeks. And um, I think 
if someone were more animated and enraged, they'd have every right to be. Mm-hmm. But for me, in the the role that I'm in right now at the Popolo Project, um, it's also really important to to make sure that people can hear me. So I think that might be maybe some of what you're hearing. Yeah, that's cool. And we've heard right? you. Yes, <laughs> yeah, it does. Definitely, definitely. All, All right. right. So. Um, Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, Thank you so much. we really appreciate it. And as I'm looking at our Kumu Facebook, there, it's just there's a bunch of messages in there just with appreciation for you. Uh, in particular, um, uh, our friend Jackson here says, Akemi is an incredible human. <laughs> <laughs> but also uh, one of our listeners, Kathy Kalama Carrera, says she appreciates your insight. She says, I love the way you connected uh, the historical origins of the word popolo. So thank you for sharing your point of view. So informative, she says. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Mahalo to uh, Kathy for tuning in. And uh, thank you very much. Uh, Akemi, did you want to mention anything else before we go? No, I just want to encourage folks. You know, this is a moment where there's a lot of energy and emotion raging. um, But this is also a a great moment for us to learn more about each other. And um, whether you check out our website or the things that we do or other organizations here in town, um, this is a wonderful time for us to learn more about each other. And by the way, the word popolo is actually a good thing. (laughs) <laughs> right, uh, and that that uh, if if nothing else, I take away from this morning and the conversation is that you've taken ownership of the word and said, okay, wait, hang on, because there's there's mm-hmm. a deeper uh, there's a deeper meaning to this word that if you take it correctly, you go, oh, that's awesome. I'd love to be called Popolo because sure. it means that you sure. are you are helpful and you're healing and you're all these wonderful things uh, within the context of, of the human race, which is that's awesome. What that's what we're aiming for. Yeah. At the same time, though, I don't want to minimize anybody's negative experience right. with sure. it because right. those are real, and yeah. the pain is very real, especially for black Hawaiians and black locals who've been called that word in a way mm-hmm. that distances them from their home mm-hmm. and their family and community. So, mm-hmm. you know, the reason why we call ourselves a project is because we're in process. It's right. not a done deal. We really want to um, invite our community to be building with us, building this understanding so um, while we want to bring out that history of the word popolo mm-hmm. and we use it and it's on everything and people mm-hmm. have to say it and think about what it means for <laughs> them, um, you know, I don't want to minimize anyone's negative experiences right. with the word either. Right. Sure, okay. sure. Wow. Well, thank you for uh, bringing the Popolo Project to our listeners 